the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah I'm an India. And we are your theory doctors. Welcome. This is the first episode of the State of the Theory podcast. So, yeah, we should probably tell people who we are. Yes. Who are you, Hannah? Who am I? I'm Hannah. My name is Hannah Fitzpatrick. I am a teaching fellow at the University of Aberdeen, way up in North Scotland. I am a historical and cultural geographer which is code for a person who spends most of their time in the library. I work on old maps, old books, old things generally. Old things generally. Who are you? I am Anandia Vichadri. I am a lecturer in the University of St Andrews, which is not quite as up north as Aberdeen, but feels harder to get to. It is. It is harder to get to. Yes. It's a lovely place. Um, I am in the School of English. I work on literature, cinema, popular culture. You're the cool one. Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we doing here? This is the State of the Theory podcast. This is the brainchild of you and me. Yes. This is a publicized version of the long conversations that we have in the car. Yeah, it feels weird that there isn't a steering wheel here. Yeah. There should be. And we're not driving through rural Fife. No. In Scotland. Yes, we are in Scotland. We are. (laughs) We are currently in Edinburgh, broadcasting from Anindia's box room, which is British for walk-in closet. Except it's not a closet. It's a book closet. It's a (laughs) book. And my book closet is bigger on the inside. That's a Doctor Who reference. You don't watch. That I would know. No. See, we said you were the cool one. Yes. <laughs> um, so, state of the theory. What is theory? What is theory? Well, our focus is critical theory, as we have, as we have indicated in our blurb. We have. But what is what is critical theory? We get asked this a lot in our our daily lives, and it's difficult to pin down exactly what all counts as theory. Um, But generally speaking, critical theory refers to a related set of strands of social and political thought that is connected primarily with questions of modernity and capitalism. And those are two really big, big words that we're basically going to explore. And critical theory has roots in a number of different philosophical lineages, but I would say that for our purposes, we will focus quite heavily on Marx, um, but also Weber, Durkheim, and Freud make an, an appearance. Um, they're generally the starting points, but what makes it critical versus just philosophy? Um, and I think that that is the understanding that reflexivity is a central component of how we use theory, the way that we put it to work. It's an awareness or an investigation of where our knowledge comes from, how it gets made, how we use it. Some of the questions, these are just a, a few a few of the basic, basic starting questions that we'll have. Questions about the state, 
about identity, about representation, cultural production, cultural consumption, language and meaning, ideology, rationality and enlightenment thinking, whatever that means, questions about the self, and basically just how we know what we know. It seems pretty straightforward, I would say. When you put it like that, it pretty. <laughs> I think we are, we are deeply suspicious of the obvious. We are deeply sus suspicious of the commonsensical about uh, what the French theorist Roland Barthes said, what goes without saying. And he has this wonderful line in a brilliant book called Mythologies, where he says he wants to expose the ideological abuse that lies behind what goes without saying. And we'd like to think that is what we're doing. We're taking things that seem self-evident, that seem obvious, and pulling it apart and seeing how it works and what it hides. And then in some cases, maybe even trying to put it back together. In a way that makes it look completely different yeah. from what it did before. Yes. State of the theory. The state of the theory. So what's our first episode? Our first episode. Our first This was actually your idea, wasn't it? You sent me this. Been. Yes. This is the Coldplay music video, Feet Beyonce, primarily trying to gain attention for their Super Bowl appearance. Him for the weekend. This week, Him for the week. It's so mundane that I couldn't even remember what it was called. So why did we decide to talk about this, given it's so unmemorable? It's been making waves on the internet. Got picked up by Twitter. So what is it? You describe it. You're better at this. Um, so the video shows uh, Coldplay, Chris Martin specifically, uh, traveling around the streets of an unnamed Indian city that is Mumbai, um, looking for Beyonce, who is starring in a fake Bollywood movie. And the movie seems to be called Rani which is Queen, and Beyonce is dressed up as a sort of fake Indian princess. In many different costumes. In many different costumes. She goes, she runs the gamut yes. from yes. scantily clad yes. to, to virginal bride. Yes. And Coldplay goes through a holy festival in trying to find Beyonce, and there's lots of colour and lots of Hindu holy men and other stereotypes of India. Dancing children. There are lots of dancing children. There's something about dancing children that white people just can't get enough of. Happy looking. Happy looking dancing Poor but brown happy. children. Poor but happy. Yeah. Because they're spiritual and deep, you see. Yeah. Yes. So yes, that's what you said it's it's made waves on the internet. Do you want to give a few examples of the kinds of waves it has been making? Yeah, so a, a lot of a lot of Indian commentators on Twitter have come out and said that this video is offensive. Just a few a few examples from Shivam at Gantagai. Coldplay's new video Him for the Weekend. Well, he got the name right. Looks like Slumdog Millionaire had a holy sequence. What is holy, by the way? For Holy is the festival of color. Uh, it happens roughly around spring where it is a regenerative um, idea. It is a predominantly Hindu festival, but it, it is observed and celebrated by 
people of many different faiths and no faiths. And it's usually quite fun. Are there regional variations in how um, it's celebrated? I think so, yes. Depending on the kinds of colour you use and the form of colours you use. There are also lots of generational differences. So kids play with colour in, in a particular way and grown-ups play with colour in another way. So they use coloured powder or they use coloured water. Um, sometimes kids put coloured water inside a balloon and throw the balloons at each other. That's holy, in a nutshell. Some more, some more tweets. Coldplay makes music for affluent whites who travel around the world to shower poor black and brown kids in their performative tears. I enjoy that one. Coldplay, don't exoticize us. You've been to the clubs and everything. Why do you want to make it seem like all we do is dance in the streets? Who was that from? Young Biryani. Even my favorite band fetishized India. Shame. Great song, though. I think we'd like to disagree. Yeah, but everyone's entitled to their opinion. Absolutely. And we are actually not interested in the quality of the music at all. No, if we, that would be a rabbit hole. Yes, we are interested in the, the politics of the video. The politics um, that, are, that is represented in the way the video um, sets India up. And one of the words, I think, um, that has been used both both to attack and to defend the video is the phrase cultural appropriation. Um, what is cultural appropriation? I think it's a question that you should answer. I think it's a question Bell Hooks should answer. Yes. So we, at various points throughout this podcast, we will use bits of critical theory. We'll read from critical theory texts. Uh, and when we do that, we will give you the reference um, so you can go and, and look it up. And then we, we we will try to apply that particular extract to whatever topic we are, we are discussing. And a text we, we both really enjoy and we find very useful in the current context is uh, a book called Black Looks, Race and Representation by Bell Hooks. And the quote here is from page 21 of the 2014 Routledge edition is the second chapter, the chapter is called Eating the Other, Desire and Resistance. Within current debates about race and difference, mass culture is the contemporary location that both publicly declares and perpetuates the idea that there is pleasure to be found in the acknowledgement and enjoyment of racial difference. The commodification of otherness has been so successful because it is offered as a new delight, more intense, more satisfying than normal ways of doing and feeling. Within commodity culture, ethnicity becomes spice, seasoning that can liven up the dull dish that is mainstream white culture. And I think we both agree that that is a good definition of cultural appropriation as we see it. Yes, I think the focus on, on capitalist forms of commodity production and commodity consumption are very important. Because the industry within which this video is made profits tremendously from these kinds of images, these kinds of tropes. So India gets invented following a certain number of characteristics, a certain number of uh, traits. And this new invented India is then used by Coldplay, by Beyonce, in order to sell their music 
to both India and to the rest of the world. Yes. What are the main traits of India that are being packaged? Oh my gosh, the Hinduism. There's a very particular representation of Hinduism that revolves around holy men and and a festival atmosphere, this sort of combination of, of serious, serene, meditative holy men and regular people running around in a state of frenzy, throwing color on each other in this kind of mashup of super spiritual awareness and um, exoticized, you know, convening with some sort of Hindu deity that, that is special, that's unique to India. And I think the, the, the notion of re, reinventing, imagining, conjuring up out of, out of nothing, apparently, a, a specifically Hindu India has particular political significances at this moment. Yes. When a, a violent, triumphalist, arch-conservative, pseudo-fascist Hindu nationalism is on the rise in many parts of India, if not most parts of India. Um, the political party that most represents that movement is in power in the central government in Delhi. Yes. And the point you made about the capitalist commodification of India is absolutely relevant because this ultra-nationalist political movement is actually deeply embedded in a globalized neoliberal capitalist economy. Yes. And and the type of economic production that this video represents slots in very neatly into this unholy alliance of conservative nationalism and neoliberal globalized international economics. Yes. There's a there's a longer history as well of this this particular way of characterizing Hinduism. Um and it is, it is, of course, a colonial history. And there are, it's amazing looking at some of these images and looking in the archive texts from the 19th century, even, even earlier, um, describing religious practice in India. And it's so similar. There is, there is a very long history of fetishizing and exoticizing Indian religion. Um, and in many cases, the, the purpose of such exoticizing was in the service of empire. It was to maintain a cultural and social justification for empire. I think that's, that's very, very well put. And I think that is, that is where cultural appropriation for us gets, it, gets its force from. Um, I think it's really interesting. Um, we we've discussed a little bit about the the internet hive mind that that and the way it has responded to the video. Um, certainly on Facebook and Twitter, one of the strands that I've noticed is people questioning whether the pure fact or the simple fact of Beyonce dressing up in Indian clothes results in cultural appropriation. Yes. And then posing the question, well what happens when Indians wear Western clothes? Is that Western cultural appropriation? Now, we, there, there's a whole other conversation to be had about the fact that these two sides are not equal in, in, terms, of, in terms of 
power and privilege uh, through society. But there's also a sense in which the, the, the chief problem with the video is not what Beyonce is wearing. The chief problem with the video is the way in which it um, recycles and reinforces particular stereotypes that in the process create a very problematic version of India. Absolutely. You always go back to Slumdog Millionaire and what Slumdog Millionaire did to cement a particular um, very contemporary image of India that is is a reiteration, a kind of um, reinforcement of older colonial tropes um, that says that says we as white directors and as as white artists have a right to be here. We have a right to to take and edit and manipulate and package and sell images of this place in the way that we want to. And that's really interesting because of course Coldplay has form here. Yes. Um, one of the one of the things that has come up in in a lot of the, the internet discussions is Coldplay's 2012 video, Princess of China, featuring Rihanna. Um, how does that video link to the present one? Well, there's a really interesting and I think quite good article that was published on The Guardian just a couple of days ago, actually, by Rashmi Kumar. You sent me this article, actually, as we were preparing for this podcast. And the title, the headline of this article is Coldplay, Only the Latest Pop Stars to Misrepresent India as an Exotic Playground. And Kumar writes specifically about Coldplay's history with this this form of exoticization. And this video with Rihanna, which I've just had the distinct privilege of watching on YouTube, is... It's almost a cookie-cutter version of this new video. What's it called? Him, weekend, him, him for the Weekend. Him for the Weekend. I'll never get it. And it, Except they've relocated the, the sexy, unobtainable black or brown body to a stylized, exoticized Chinese context. In fact, they even they call her the princess of China, which is which is even more distressing, I think. Um that the song itself refers specifically to this context. And she's a bit Rihanna, she's a bit strippery. There's there's elements of of Lady Gaga, vintage Lady Gaga in there. Um there's a bit crouching tiger hidden dragon. There, there are also rather disturbingly elements of Hindu goddess iconography. Yes, the arms. Yes, she has multiple arms. She has many arms. The the quote you read read from Bell Hooks. It's the spice. It's the it's the uh, exotic ethnicity where it doesn't really matter what form of exoticness uh, we are dealing with. Anything goes. Anything will do, as long as it can be marked as different from. The mainstream white world. Yes. And I think one of the, we were just talking about this, one of the, the key elements 
of that spice is mm. that it doesn't need to reflect reality. Yes. It can be invented in the imagination of the creator. I think one of the quotes that exemplifies that argument is from a, a germinal uh, critical theorist, Homi Baba, and his book, The Location of Culture. Um, and I'll just read this, this brief paragraph. The stereotype, then, as the primary point of subjectification in colonial discourse for both colonizer and colonized, is the scene of a similar fantasy and defense, the desire for an originality which is again threatened by differences of race, color, and culture. The stereotype is not a simplification because it is a false representation of a given reality. It is a simplification because it is an arrested, fixated form of representation that, in denying the play of difference, constitutes a problem for the representation of the subject in significations of psychic and social relations. We always already know that blacks are licentious, Asiatics duplicitous. And it's this sense, I think, that Bhabha uh, identifies of the, the fact that what matters not so much whether a particular stereotype is true or not within Great Big Scare Quotes, but rather that in the power of being able to make a stereotype, you are creating a fixed, unchanging, essentialized version of that other. And the other, by definition, gets no say in how the stereotype works um, through mainstream white culture. This is quite an old process as well. It goes, as always, it goes back in time. It was a very colonial process used to subjugate future and current colonial subjects to render, as, um, as many subaltern studies theorists argue, render India and the colonized space as being without history, as being devoid of time, that India and Indians never change. There is no, there is, there is no progress. And if there is no progress, then the, then the place is therefore inferior. They can never move beyond their current moment. There's no, there's no possibility for improvement, that Victorian ideal. And that sense of historicity, both in terms of the history of where these cultures have come from and therefore presumably where they might be going, but also the sense of historicity in the tradition that of particular modes of representation that a video like this slots into is really important in the way identity is formed in culture. It goes beyond India, it goes beyond music video, um, into more generally how, how we know who we are and how we talk about who we are. Um, so uh, the famous cultural critic and theorist Stuart Hall uh, in in a, a landmark chapter called Cultural Identity and Diaspora, uh, which was first published in a book called Identity, Community, Culture, Difference, edited by Rutherford and published in 1990 by Lawrence and Wishart. Um, and this is, this is what Stuart Hall argues. Cultural identity is a matter of becoming as well as of being. It belongs to the future as much as to the past. 
It is not something which already exists, transcending place, time, history and culture. Cultural identities come from somewhere, have histories, but like everything which is historical, they undergo constant transformation. Far from being eternally fixed in some essentialized past, they are subject to the continuous play of history, culture and power. Far from being grounded in a mere recovery of the past, which is waiting to be found, and which, when found, will secure our sense of ourselves into eternity. Identities are the names we give to the different ways we are positioned by and position ourselves within the narratives of the past. And of course, the most pertinent problem with a video like this Coldplay video is that India or Indians are given no control over the names they are given or the ways in which they might be able to position themselves with the narratives of the past. This is an interesting question because there was an op-ed published in Time magazine. A lot of the online commentary, especially the criticism, has been not of Coldplay, but of Beyonce and her participation in this particular project. In some cases, there is, I think, a sense of betrayal among liberal fans of Beyonce's who believe that she should know better, for example, because she herself is is part of a culture that is often appropriated and has been for centuries. Um, there's a feeling that she has let down her liberal fans. And this, this Time Magazine op-ed, which was written on the 2nd, so Tuesday, the headline is Beyonce as Bollywood star is not cultural appropriation. And this article was written by two activists and academics in the United States. And they write that this doesn't qualify as cultural appropriation because the assumption that Beyonce appropriating South Asian culture would deny the possibility of black bodies being a part of South Asian history and being a part of South Asian society. And they therefore say that she has a right. In other words, if we argue that Beyonce is appropriating South Asia as an outsider, then that suggests, I think these authors would, would argue, that blackness, specifically Beyonce's blackness, is external to South Asia. And of course it isn't. Blackness is and always has been an integral part of South Asia in a way that is very visible in large parts of South Asia. Does, does either Beyonce's blackness or Rihanna's blackness in the Princess of China video, does this mean we need to redefine how cultural appropriation works? Because if we go back to the Bell Hooks quote, that we started with, Bell Hooks is talking about blackness being appropriated, not blackness doing the appropriating. I think that is where the the internet hive mind, the social media hive mind, has located itself in this particular debate. There is a very serious question about whether or not a black artist can be an appropriator of culture. And that question, to me is fundamentally less interesting 
than the issue of Beyonce and Rihanna being portrayed as black and brown bodies in an exoticized visual context for the very obvious consumption by Chris Martin. He is literally sitting in a movie theater watching Beyonce dance. It's it's fetishist in its most kind of blatant... In the same way he has spent the previous parts of the video consuming India. Yes, staring out the window of the taxi. Yes. And the taxi is quite interesting because uh, in the original BBC report of the video, on, on the BBC online of the video and the internet reaction to it, it used the phrase, Chris Martin travels around the streets of Mumbai in a tuk-tuk. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know... Uh, a tuk, when the BBC describes it as a tuk-tuk, it refers to a very specific three-wheeled motorised vehicle, which in Southeast Asia is called a tuk-tuk, but in India isn't. In India it's called an auto rickshaw. <laughs> and as it happens, Chris Martin isn't, is never in an auto rickshaw or a tuk-tuk in the entirety of the video. No. So there is a sense in which not only is this video extending an already well-established mode of stereotyping and cultural appropriation. It is doing it so well that in the white western eyes of the BBC, it is it is almost referring to things that don't exist on the video. Yes, the like tropes. The, the tropes are so ingrained. Yes. They're so clear. There's such a shared cultural understanding yes. among those consuming the video that the video doesn't even need to show it to us. We already have a shared knowledge of, of what those tropes are. Of course, we don't recognize them as tropes. Which brings me to my next question, which is, is there a sense in which the, the familiarity of these tropes, is there a sense in which India, and specifically this Hindu form of India, as we've discussed, are we better able to to identify cultural appropriation when it comes to Hindu India than certain other forms of otherness? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. We are also able to identify quite a bit of cultural appropriation now when it comes to Black and African American and Caribbean and African cultures. Um, there's a lot of debate about hairstyles um, particularly among young white women in the United States. So we're able to recognize a number of hot topic issues and, and looks and, and visuals, but I think there's a very obvious blind spot, um, and that is Arab and Muslim imagery and the appropriation of Arab and Muslim tropes. I think that's very well put. Um, in fact, uh, the director of this particular music video, uh, Ben Moores, um, made another music video in 2010 for Black Eyed Peas for a song called Meet Me Halfway, uh, which depicted very similar tropes, uh, very similar methods of cultural appropriation, but didn't generate anywhere near as much of a reaction as this one has. Um, and interestingly, even in this current debate, people have gone to the Coldplay and Rihanna video for 
Princess of China, but they have not gone to Ben Moore's previous work. Um, and this video is fascinating because the imagery is so blatant. I mean, we we watched it and immediately had a had a visceral response to the Arab imagery on display, and it depicts a a man in the desert levitating with head covering and face covering and Lawrence of Arabia style slitted sunglasses and lots of gold and lots of gold and he's alone in a desert and so it's un it's un what is he doing you it, it it is it's casting will i am as a cross between Lawrence of Arabia and Aladdin the genie from Aladdin I think it is uh, both interesting and uh, deeply problematic that even for um, the le liberal left, theoretically informed social media hive mind, this seems to be less objectionable than equally offensive um, representations of Hindu India. And of China. And of China. It is interesting. I wonder if this if this debate were were to enter the discourse of the liberal social media hive mind. What would happen? It's a. I don't know what would happen. I'd like to think that a lot of my friends and also commentators that I that I know and read and follow would have the same response that we have had. But I I don't know because I haven't I haven't seen it. If anyone has seen serious and sustained debate about this issue, let us know. Let us know. We'll tell you how to let us know then. There are serious consequences and ramifications for this partic these particular tropes about Islam and Muslims. I absolutely. I think um there is a a distant, perhaps, but nevertheless direct connection between the ways in which stereotypical forms of representation feel able to define the other. Uh, in other words, when a, a music video or, a, or an advert or a film or whatever text it is, when that text feels able to define the Muslim Arab or the Hindu Indian or the the Oriental, within big scare quotes, when 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 these texts can successfully claim the ability to represent the other, then it is perhaps much more much easier for a much more virulently racist form of mainstream white culture to be able to say that is what Muslims are like. In other words. If Will I Am can get away with embodying the the, the uh, magical, mystical, otherworldly Muslim Arab, then it is it gets easier for Donald Trump to be able to say Muslims are dangerous and we shouldn't let them in. Yes, and this is, I mean this is Orientalism. We haven't actually in... defined or discussed Orientalism. We haven't. Yet. Orientalism has has made its way, I think it's influenced the shape of, of the conversation, but 
we haven't even mentioned it, but of course Orientalism is is one of our, I think, core texts. Um, it, Orientalism was a was a I would say it was a paradigm shifting book when it was first published by Edward Said, and it generated its fair share of, of criticism and debate and has shaped many academic disciplines. Um, certainly all the work that I do is influenced heavily by Orientalism and Said. And just to give you some context and some understanding, I'm going to read a little paragraph about what Orientalism is in the words of the author himself, Edward Said. Orientalism depends for its strategy on this flexible positional superiority, which puts the Westerner in a whole series of possible relationships with the Orient, without ever losing him the relative upper hand. And why should it have been otherwise, especially during the period of extraordinary European ascendancy from the late Renaissance to the present? The scientist, the scholar, the missionary, the trader, or the soldier was in or thought about the Orient because he could be there or could think about it with very little resistance on the Orient's part. Under the general heading of knowledge of the Orient and within the umbrella of Western hegemony over the Orient during the period from the end of the 18th century, there emerged a complex Orient suitable for the study in the academy, for display in the museum, for reconstruction in the colonial office, for theoretical illustration in anthropological, biological, linguistic, racial, and historical theses about mankind and the universe, for instances of economic and sociological theories of development, revolution, cultural personality, national or religious character. Basically, Said is creating a theoretical model that posits that there is this space called the Orient that is primarily an imaginative space for the Western colonizing mind. In a sense, the pre-hive mind. This world in which Westerners could posit or propose a number of different relationships, um, cultural relationships with with the people who they encountered, but without ever actually needing consent or without ever needing to go there or without ever needing to engage in any sort of real cultural encounter. Is that right? That is right. And I think that uh, encapsulates why much of the commentary on this particular video that talks about the banality of the video or the banality of the music is fundamentally misguided. Is this video in and of itself hugely important? Perhaps not. Is it a good piece of music? We would say not. But we would not be interested in the quality or otherwise of the music. But it is definitely not banal because it represents a long tradition of what uh, Michel Foucault, among others, has described as epistemic violence the violence being done through forms of representation and the voices that are being erased, violently erased and replaced by other voices which look and sound very different. 
What I think is especially interesting and that you you have mentioned before is that now there is a growing and 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 I would say that this is good. There is a a growing um, ability and space for especially Indians in this context to object to this representation of India. That there is there is now a space for us to challenge these images and these tropes about India. But going back to the Black Eyed Peas video from 2010, we haven't yet made a discursive break between the tropes and a different reality between the tropes that we see in, in films and, um, and photographs. A lot of photographs I think of are, are from, from conflict zones taken by Western photojournalists, these kind of, um, shock and awe photos of ISIS. And, um, before that, the Taliban and Al Qaeda that, that the images that we see that we think are true too closely resemble the Orientalist tropes that we see popularized in, in media, in films and, and music videos, that there is not yet the ability to break the connection and to say, oh, hold up, that's a pretty damaging racist trope. We can't we can't let this pass without comment. And that, of course, ties into the most important fact, which is that a, an actual presidential candidate who has actual Secret Service protection funded by the American taxpayer can get up in front of a crowd of people and say, Muslims should not be allowed into our country and have that crowd of people cheer for him. There is, there is a connection. And it is fundamentally damaging. And it is fundamentally dangerous. And it's definitely not banal. <laughs> it's the opposite of banal. So I think we are done for the first episode. And we hope you've enjoyed it. We've enjoyed it. We have definitely enjoyed it. Let's look out for our next episode, which will be about, among other things, homosexuality in India. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichardvi. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Well, well.